and welcome to Managing Risk in Asia. I'm Nanette Dodu, a Beijing-based partner of Freshfields and co-head of our China competition practice. Today, we will be discussing ESG issues, in particular, governance and the value of board diversity. There's clearly no doubt that ESG has risen up the corporate agenda, driven by combination of investor activism, government-led initiatives, climate change, societal issues, and shifts in the way companies are thinking about governance. In this podcast, we look at board diversity in Hong Kong and in the US as examples of how this might inform diversity and corporate governance standards across Asia. We will consider the unique challenges facing Hong Kong, the actions Hong Kong is taking to move forward and the risks for companies which don't get up to speed. I'm joined today by two of my partners, Teresa Ko, Freshfields China Chairman and a founding partner of the firm's Asia Capital Markets practice. Teresa has been active and influential in Hong Kong's rise as a global capital raising venue. Among her many public service appointments, Teresa currently serves as one of our four co-chairmen of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange Listing Review Committee. In 2009, Teresa became the first female to chair the HKSC's Listing Committee and leveraged her position to push for greater gender diversity on the boards of Hong Kong listed companies and listing applicants. I'm also joined by Tim Wilkins, our global partner for client sustainability. Tim has over two decades of experience guiding social justice, cultural and sustainability initiatives across New York City and around the world. Tim advises clients on regulatory, litigation and transactional issues, including the role business can play in the fight for racial justice. Tim has been a fierce advocate for social justice on several boards of leading non-profit organisations. I'm also pleased to welcome a special guest, Keith Poxon, the Deputy Chairman of the Hong Kong Listing Committee and Chair of the Standing Committee on Corporate Governance and ESG of the Listing Committee of the HKSE. He is also Senior Partner of Ernst & Young's Financial Services Asia-Pacific Business and works with regulatory bodies such as the Financial Stability Board and governments in the region on regulatory and market reform initiatives and represents Ernst & Young on the Global Public Practice Committee Banking Working Group. Keith, I'd like to begin with you by asking, why has board diversity become a key risk issue for business? And what has been the response in Hong Kong from companies and regulators? Thank you, Nanette, and thanks for the introduction. It's a great pleasure to be here with you today. So why is this a big issue? I think uh, globally we've seen increasing amounts of investor interest in whether organizations are making their best efforts on issues such as sustainability and board diversity. It's clearly an area of focus and I think increasingly we're seeing that investors are reducing the investable landscape to companies which they think fit their ethical um, ideas and views. So if you're not out there and you're not uh, uh, in that investable universe, you're going to find it increasingly difficult to raise capital and support the financing of your business. But where are we in Hong Kong? Well, in, in Hong Kong, this has become a real challenge. I think we've stagnated at about 13% women on boards. Uh, 
And that's just one measure of obviously board diversity, but is a very easy measure for us to track. And it's very clear that at, for a number of years now, we've hovered in this 12, 13% level that we're struggling to break through. So to respond to that at the Hong Kong exchange, um, we recognize that little is likely to change without regulatory intervention. And so we're at the moment in the market consulting on some very direct changes to the regime in Hong Kong. One thing is to effectively um, require that we have no single gender boards. There's obviously, as all consultations and changes to rules, there's a, there's a bit of a time delay. But effectively, within three years, we'd look for all presently listed companies to be multi-gender at the board level. And similarly, we are moving to a situation where new filers will be required to be multi-gender as well. We're also focusing on some of the other challenges that sit around this topic. And one of those is obviously without turnover at the board level, there aren't opportunities to change the gender balance. Um, and so we're encouraging board uh, refreshment. So effectively, through looking at the, the, the real independence of board directors who've been long tenured on boards and challenging whether these individuals still bring the same value to the board in terms of that independent mindset. And really, one of the other things we're doing to, to push this along, and you know, I'm a strong believer if you don't measure it, it doesn't get done, is to put some metrics around this. So both the metrics for the board, and that will be publicly disclosed, but also to require metrics for not just the board, but the wider organization in terms of gender diversity. So really a, a, a package of, of reforms um, that will hopefully accelerate the, the gender diversity discussion in, in the Hong Kong market and for companies listed here in Hong Kong. Tim, how does this contrast with the US, which has been driving board diversity? Thank you very much, uh, Nanette, for the question and then joining the podcast here. It was quite interesting to hear Keith talk about the importance of the regulatory framework in Hong Kong. And it'll be interesting as part of this discussion to see why that is really the key lever for change in Hong Kong at the moment, whereas in the U.S., the biggest contrast, it, it has been the investors who's been pushing this. And Keith mentioned that in the beginning, that there are a certain slate of investors that are making it clear that you will no longer be on their list if you uh, do not have a, a diverse board. So the way that you phrased the initial question about how this is a real risk for businesses in the U.S., one, um, access to capital and funding being critical from investors. So you have the likes of legal in general who said next year, if there's not at least one black, Asian or other minority ethnic director on your board, they will not vote for the entire slate of directors. So we're talking a basic corporate governance a grinding halt. But it goes even beyond um, just the investors. We do have some regulation coming in the U.S., as it will not surprise any watchers of United States government, it is California leading the charge here. And California has recently uh, enacted a law, SB 979, for the the legal nerds keeping track over there. Um, this law is putting an actual penalty if there is not a representative from what they've described as an underrepresented group, which you can imagine that's on racial and ethnic minorities. And those penalties, not huge, $100,000 the first time, $300,000 afterwards, 
But we really believe that the list of those companies who get slapped with that penalty will be quite a, a big impact on their public reputation. And so in the US, the second category, in addition to the investors, is sort of the name and shame categories that we have seen from human rights uh, groups used very effectively to raise the profile of those businesses that do not seem to be going along with the ethical values that customers are looking for. So customers, employees are likely to vote with their feet if they don't see a very visible way of seeing representation. And that goes straight up to the board. So those have been the biggest pushes in the US and quite effective, I must say, um, that the large investment community and em employee consumer groups have been quite actively looking to have changes in board diversity. Thanks for that, Tim. Teresa, I'd like to turn to you, just based on what Keith has said and the progress that's being made in Hong Kong um, and some of the drivers in the US, what do you think is a reason for why Hong Kong has has lagged. First of all, thank you very much uh, for inviting me to join this podcast. I think as uh, Keith has mentioned, I think in Hong Kong we have uh, structural issues in that a number of the companies, a large number of the companies are still family controlled. I think historically there is a, a view that um, the function of a board is more on the compliance side to make sure that all the rules and regulations are complied with, rather than to use it as a, as a sounding board and to help the company set its strategies, implement its strategies and make management accountable. I think there is all the problems we see essentially stems from a lack of an understanding of the value, of the true value of a board and I do think that what we need to see is a mindset change that an undiverse board leads to groupthink and may not be actually the best way in order to tackle the challenges that many companies face with a world which is changing as rapidly as we see it. Keith, do you want to add to this at all? Just quickly, um, and I completely agree with Theresa and Tim's comments, actually, you know, the structural issues in terms of shareholder ownership, whether it's family owned or government owned in the case of state owned enterprises, obviously means that the impact of investor pressure is, is mitigated, is reduced. I think it's actually more than that as well. I think um, we, we've seen less consumer focus, a bit more apathy in terms of society here, in terms of forcing back on, you know, not buying people's products or not utilizing people's services if they uh, are not appropriately aligned in terms of their social values. That seems to be a, a little bit slower in terms of taking its weight upon these companies. The other thing I'd say is just the way in which the capital markets are utilized. That often in the, you know, in the US and other markets, once you go to the capital market, you have an ongoing relationship with investors. You build investor relations, you listen to your investors, you work with your investors and you interact with them. Where for, for a number of companies in the Hong Kong market, it's what I'd call one and done. They come to the market, they, you know, they raise their capital and they run off with the money affected. I mean that, you know, just to utilize it, I don't mean it in a bad way, but they, they're one and done. They come, they take their money and they go away rather than in a US market where they'll, they'll come and tap the market again and again, potentially for growth capital to invest in their business and hence you know if you're one and done you don't really 
necessarily have the same compulsion to build a, an investor story. You come, you do your thing, people invest, they take their risk in the business, they have a growth opportunity potentially, but the company doesn't come back. So just structurally very different, but uh, also just this uh, a lot slower movement in terms of consumer activity and employee activity towards organizations which are less socially aware. And I'm wondering, Keith, just putting that in the context of the active shareholder activists, because I liked how Nanette said in the very beginning that this issue is in the general framework of ESG. And in the U.S., at least, we have seen the climate change activists get a small, you know, just a few shares in a particular public company and then raise those issues onto the boards. And we're anticipating in the U.S. that those sort of activists around social issues will also be active. Is that even structurally possible in Hong Kong? It's technically possible. It's actually quite difficult to do. It's technically possible. One of the barriers is really that the vast majority of the stock that's publicly traded in Hong Kong is held in the name of nominees. So to actually get on the share register is, 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 is say, as an effort. You have to effectively deregister your stock from being on the exchange and register it in your own name rather than a nominee so that you can actually then go through the process. So it, it, it's doable. But again, it comes down to the compulsion to do that. If you've got a company that's 75% owned by a family and you turn up at their AGM and tell them they're doing a horrible job on pollution or something, you might get your moment in the sun, but it's not necessarily going to be taken on board, literally on board um, by the organization in terms of the, uh, the impact that it will have on the company's activities. So it's a very good question. We have some real structural challenges. So far, we haven't seen a huge amount of that type of activism occurring. I actually think that coming back to, to Nanette's starting point around the investable universe for investors, I think in reality, that's going to become the major driver. When organizations see that their stock starts to trade much more at a discount than a premium because they don't uh, actually have the appropriate policies in place. And I would add that mindset takes time to change and the fact that there hasn't been a deadline. I'd like to think that in 2021, corporates do understand the need to embrace diversity on many fronts, including at the board level. I'd like to think that many corporates do want to do the right thing. But so far, we have not had any hard rule. Um, we have all, you know, for the last 10 years, we've relied on nudging, peer pressure. We have, uh, uh, you know, relied on many soft approaches, uh, but they've all fallen on deaf ears. So I am very excited with this uh, proposal, which effectively imposes a quota for every publicly listed company in Hong Kong to have a woman on the board within three years. I do think quota should not be regarded as anything other than a means to redress an imbalance which has existed in Hong Kong and which is, which is hurting Hong Kong's reputation because by all measure, you know, Hong Kong is very behind at 13.7%. Um, and if you uh, look at um, the MSCI Global Equity Index, it's even worse at 12.7%. Uh, in terms of female directors on Hong Kong listed companies. So, um, and, and quotas need not stay forever. I mean, the question I have is one woman on board within three years, is that nearly enough in order to make the change or accelerate the change? But hopefully it will be a tipping point 
and others will follow and change will, will happen a lot more faster. Therese, I'd like to pick up on your point because clearly diversity is more than just a numbers game. You've also mentioned the importance of a mindset change uh, and also adopting measures essentially that will pivot companies towards change. I'd like to ask the question, how should we be measuring success then? Uh, and what KPI should we be measuring ourselves against? Uh, perhaps I'll start with you, um, Tim, uh, to just to talk a little bit about the experience in the US um, at the moment. It's quite interesting. We had a great panel just recently where we were discussing with um, African-American uh, board members uh, their roles on boards. The first piece, even though the numbers may look better in the U.S., we were quite surprised to find that the same board members were on three or four major important, whether it's Silicon Valley companies or consumer products companies or industrial companies. So I would say that um, there still seems to be a tapping of the same people. So when you say, yes, each company can say we have one, but it would be nice if we had more um, new voices um, on these boards. But investors are certainly looking at kind of the raw numbers, but what they're really looking at and has been the biggest emphasis in the U.S. is looking at the effective human capital management. As each board member has said that by bringing diverse board members, you are now able to attract more diverse talents to come into your organizations. And it's you may have seen some of the statistics that during the pandemic, many employers are still desperately trying to attract employees to come back. And those companies that were able to retain their, um, comp uh, their employees tended in large part to score very highly across ESG, including social diversity, that this is something very valued for employees. And they do look at it all the way up. So I'm guessing that the most sophistication will start with, yes, how many do you have on your boards? But boards are pretty small numbers in the US. But then they will go and say, how many people do you have in senior leadership? And how many people do you have further down? And we've seen some announcements just recently of senior leadership teams that are pledging to be diverse by 2030 uh, in the same proportion as their employee population. So that's going to be the next measurement, I believe. So that's quite ambitious. Keith, what's on the horizon, <laughs> would you say, in Hong Kong? Well, for, Can you match that or beat that? Well, you know... Uh... I guess you're putting me in a very difficult place here because for Hong Kong, our, our considerations are actually in a very different place. As Teresa was alluding to, I think the way we're looking at the measures in terms of you know percentages of, of diversity on boards um, and in the workforce and so on is really uh, not to be the naughty kid in the class. Um, you know, so we're, we're trying to get off the, the bottom rungs and to move much more up the progress um, of what's occurring in global uh, situations here. So, um, you know, success for us is going to be moving away from the bottom of the pack into the middle of the pack and beyond. And as Therese was saying, it's small steps. We're, we're moving in the right direction, but there's quite a journey to go on. So, uh, you know, I, I look forward to the day when we have um, board diversity that matches workforce diversity. I think that would be a very successful place for us to be here in Hong Kong. We're actually relatively 
uh, blessed with a, a wide workforce um, diversity generally, and we do a lot better if uh, we can get the boards to be somewhere near that workforce representation. So, yep, not being the naughty kid, I guess, is the measure here. <laughs> Well, um, many will know that I've advocated for a quota of 40% within six years. That's not a pipe dream. In fact, it came through quite a lot of uh, research, including looking at Norway, which was the first country to have introduced a 40% quota in 2003. And at that time, uh, the country only gave corporates five years to comply with it. But I know that we have to start uh, with baby steps, as Keith said, so I am pleased to see that we are moving. Quota of one um, may lead to tokenism, and, and research has uh, also shown that uh, the magic number is three. So, but what I would want to make sure that collectively we don't do is to do only the superficial thing by putting out a lot of copy and paste type disclosure, uh, paying lip service to this whole topic, because one has to embrace it with heart and soul, because it is not only just the right thing to do, but it prevents groupthink, it uh, ensures diversity of thought and brings together different perspective to make the board stronger and the company more resilient. And I think that um, the stock exchange has thought of uh, um, making sure that there is some measure that can be, or some tool that can measure success, which is the web proposed website, um, you know, a special website in which you can um, kind of look at the, 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 the relevant data, the length of uh, directorships, uh, the gender. Um, I think some have described it as a name and shame tool. But I think we need everything we can to help us uh, progress this. And I think I, I should add that I am absolutely delighted to see the proposal extends to workforce. And this comes back, Timothy, to your point about human capital is really the driver behind change. And if it can be implemented across the board, turn from the top at the board level to everybody within the organisation, then we are likely to see more progress faster. So clearly all three of you are quite passionate about board diversity, and that's, that's very obvious from your responses. What do you perceive are the risks for companies that don't get up to speed, that don't adopt the same enthusiasm for board diversity as a key ESG risk? Well, just jumping in briefly, uh, certainly the investor groups and uh, I, I, Keith, I'd love your thoughts on this, but we've talked about money moves around the world, right? And they will quickly go to those companies that are demonstrating that for good governance reasons, everything that Teresa has said, that you want to have a, a diverse board. The other piece is really about competitive advantage and strategy, and we're seeing this across 
the ESG spectrum, that those companies that are a bit ahead on thinking about climate change, not in a defensive way, but are already starting to organize those companies for the future, which is the same thing about making sure you have a diverse workforce and diverse boards, that those companies that are ahead of the game, they're going to get uh, faster in front of their uh uh, competitors, and they will have the type of loyalty, which at least in the US, people are paying premium for what I call origin stories. So understanding everything about how that business actually created their product, including who were the workers who worked on it, hopefully no human rights violations in the supply chain, but similarly, do they represent diverse workforces of the greatest creativity that they can see themselves in that product? And then they'll pay a premium for it, which is the ultimate competitive advantage. Yeah, I, th I think, Tim, to your, to, to your point there, um, if we step back and we look at global investors, you, you can really break them into uh, passive and active investors in terms of investment flows. Passive investors basically are going to be locked into whatever is a constituent of an index. But we're increasingly seeing that group go, okay, I can't use the uh, the age-old game of if you don't like the company, you sell it because they're locked into the index. So what can they do? Well, increasingly, they can use their weight and muscle to persuade those companies to do the right thing. So rather than being totally passive, they're passive as to the companies that they can select, but they can be very active in terms of the way they work and influence those companies. So clearly in the, in the US, that's worked very well through, through proxies and various other voting mechanisms. But these, uh, these institutions are truly global. They have capital flows all around the world. And they, they don't say, you know, this is a market I can't invest in. They are, by their nature, investing truly globally and trying to invest tru truly globally. So, so again, you know, their, their investable universe is going to be defined by market indices. But I think increasingly we're going to see the market indices being defined by ESG-related issues. So I think uh, we're going to increasingly see that it is those ESG-related indexes that become more important than the generic indices because the individuals, the mums and pops who sit behind that institutional money, they're voting with their feet. They're actually saying, I want gender-friendly money, I want climate risk-friendly money, whatever the issue happens to be. And believe me, they only need one of those issues to motivate them to change. They don't need to be aligned to all of the issues. It's just one of the issues, if it excites them, motivates them, they're going to move. And that, for me, is going to be an enormous uh, impact to the marketplace. If you're not in that ESG-friendly index, whichever market it happens to be in, you're not in the investable universe. And if you're not in the investable universe, you're not going to get the capital flows. If you're already out there, if you're one and done, your market price will start to fall because you'll, you'll be trading at a discount to the marketplace. Whatever that means to you, whether it's in the name and shame embarrassment, you know, you're the fall, falling stock that people are talking about, or whether versus your competitors who are doing things that are appropriate and are getting into the index, they're getting a lot more excitement around their stock, but they're also getting a lot more positive coverage, market coverage, press coverage around their activities as well. And hopefully that feeds through to consumer behavior. So I think, you know, I think to me, the, the direction here is really clear. And, you know, whether we have the direct mechanisms for investor uh, impact through institutional money, or whether it's this more soft index driven refocusing of market investment and so on, uh, the direction is clear, I think.
Well, I think with that, there's not a lot that I can add except to say that you will be really left behind and you will be, be left behind from the future workforce as well. Because if you look at the younger generation today, they all support, embrace and, and see diversity to be extremely important. So recruiting your next generation of workforce will also become something that you have to explain yourself away as to why your board is completely male and senior management is completely male. I mean, that should be a no-brainer for people to start changing their approach and hopefully help to change their mindset as to the value of diversity, particularly on boards. Thank you very much, everyone, for those helpful and very insightful thoughts. Uh, clearly, what we are seeing in Hong Kong is this pivot, pivoting of companies towards towards change. And the hope is that this will also take root in other parts of Asia. I would like to conclude this podcast by thanking each of you, uh, Teresa, Tim and Keith, for this very insightful discussion. Please join us for our next podcast in the Managing Risk in Asia series, which will focus on ESG regulatory landscape in Asia. Thank you.